Welcome to West Virginia and Commonplace. Today I have with me Kalayla. Her name is amazing. The way that I wanted to pronounce her name, it was just completely different. Um, if she doesn't mind real quick, I'll do the spelling. It's K-I-L-A-Y-L-A. So you are here with us on the show to talk about yourself and some things that you got going on. You have many titles to your name. You're an author. You're a survivor. You've been there quite a bit. So please tell the audience about yourself real fast. Real quick. My name is Kalela Pilon. I'm from Canada. Um, I'm currently working on a fantasy novel and I have three other books on, on the docket. And then I have two cats that I live with that are my best friends. So, you know, there's the basics. Okay, and you have some some things that have happened to you and you have gone through some things that um, I definitely would like to talk about. So the one thing I want to talk about and I want to get a definition out of you from this is multiple personality disorders. Um, this is something that you have been diagnosed with, correct? Yes. And can you explain to us your definition of this and how this has played out in your life thus far? All right, so... Multiple personality disorder is the outdated term for something called dissociative identity disorder, also known as DID. There are subsidiaries like uh, other specified dissociative disorder, 1B, 1A, and stuff like that. But we're going to focus on DID specifically because that's what I'm diagnosed with. Okay. I was diagnosed a year ago, exactly this month, a year ago. And it is composed of two alternating personality states within one body. Um, usually with significant amnesia, uh, the main, the main focus of the disorder is dissociative symptoms, which are very common and everybody experiences dissociation, but with DID, it's a bit more extensive. Okay. So it's not like what people are going to think like out the movies that you have two different personalities. And then when you cut the light off and cut it back on, you're going to be somebody different. It's not like that at all. Okay. And with having being diagnosed with this this, this disorder, um, once you found out about this, did it help you become uh, more eased in your thoughts and patterns of things that happened in your teenage years and in your childhood? Well, given the fact that it's a trauma form disorder, uh, so basically saying it only forms with severe repeated childhood abuse of some form. Uh, usually there, it's, there's a lot of debate, but it's before the ages of seven to nine, somewhere around there is when it, there's a cutoff. After that, you can still de develop dissociative disorders, but not quite DID. Um, repeat the question. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I don't know. Basically what, what I was asking was, was like, did anything like basically what you're explaining now, uh, some type of trauma you're explaining to us, uh, basically you, you can pinpoint back to when the trauma started and when exactly uh, your diagnosis came into effect back then till now. Yes. Well, for me, um, I went through a lot of years, a lot of medical treatment for a lot of things um, and a lot of misdiagnosis. So it started out with just depression when I was a teenager, an early teenager, which just led to anxiety, which led to, oh, maybe she's just got OCD. Oh, maybe she's got ADHD which eventually led to a borderline diagnosis. And that became the staple of what I was diagnosed with for a long time, which we later would learn is actually incorrect. Um, borderline is a very stigmatized disorder, a mental health disorder that does have identity disturbance, just not to the same degree, although it is possible to have DID and BPD at the same time. 
So with the BPD diagnosis, I went through a lot of different therapy and nothing was seeming to hit that right point. But then when one of my therapists had noticed that, you know, I was showing up to appointments and then I'd call her like, I'm so sorry, I missed the appointment. And she'd be like, you were here. What are you talking about? And then slowly it started unraveling. And as things happened in my life, those, so here to kind of explain this part, dissociative identity disorder is very, I think it's about 90 to 95% of cases are considered covert, whereas the rest are overt, which is a more, overt is when it's very pronounced, it's noticeable, it's, but with most cases, it's covered, it's hidden because it's a survival mechanism. So because of that survival mechanism, everybody was very against, like, they had no idea there was something wrong. They thought I was fine until things started falling apart. And then I did DBT, I did CBT, I did a little bit of MDBT, um, but yeah, it's been a wild ride. And the diagnosis has definitely changed my form of treatment. I'm in a specialized treatment program now, and I'm very, very lucky to have access to that. Okay, and inside of this also, um, something that you uh, gave me in uh, the information was you experienced electric electroconvulsion therapy. I may not electroconvulsive right. therapy, yes. Yes. ECT. And how did that affect you? ECT for me. So on top of my dissociative identity disorder, I also have something called persistent depressive disorder, which is a form of depression considered consistent and active for a minimum of two years at a time or longer with no break. So basically severe, untreatable depression. But we didn't know it was to that extent. So I went through the ECT because with the DID, here's the real fun kicker. DID can very much portray itself in other ways. People can think it's bipolar or schizophrenia. And those were labels tossed around and discussed and, you know, slapped onto me as a, this is a possibility, let's check it out. So because of that, and after experiencing a trauma, I completely dissociated, went off the rails, went, was up and down in mood and completely gone. Like I, there was no coming back at that point. So they did the ECT. So it very much was beneficial in some ways, but it did completely mess up my memory, which is already bad as it is. So now I just float by like, yeah, I'm going to remember that maybe next year, but ECT is. Electroconvulsive therapy is formerly known as shock therapy. Um, Nowadays, yes, yes. Nowadays it is done under sedation only, um, only with consent and in a special, with a specialized um, setup. Like for me, I was inpatient for the month. I had 12 sessions over the course of a month and I had an IV in at all times, except for on the weekends and would go in 6 a.m. Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then I'd be, and yeah, and then I would not remember anything of that day. I don't remember if it hurt because I don't remember a lot of it, but I have heard some horror stories of people remembering the event itself. So I would like to say I'm very lucky in that I don't remember. I just remember falling asleep and waking up and it's three days later, which is pretty normal for me. And one thing I do want to throw in here for the audience as a disclaimer, this all took place inside of Canada. This was not something that took place in the U.S. because uh, shock therapy is a, it's a taboo topic now. But you know, yeah. uh, in in the in the efforts of 
I want to say at least 35 years ago, it was something that was still the norm here. And over time, it just kind of disappeared. So throughout these things, uh, you developed a, a, an idea in your head and you decided that you wanted to write some books. Yes. So I ask every author this question. You start writing your books. Um, were these books for self-care or were these to get, make awareness for everyone or were they one in, one in the same? I think one in the same for me. Um, with my first book, it was more just the fact of creativity, a way of coping, a way of escaping the life I was living because I was 14 at the time when I wrote it. So it was many years ago. And my further books, like the ones I have now, are very much, you know, how do I spread the message of, you know, mental health is important. You know, your experiences aren't, you're not alone and stuff like that. So that's been a focus when writing the books, but the main focus has been helping me to cope and move past and just be creative in my own way. Okay. And I appreciate that because a lot of people don't do that mental empowerment for people. It's hard because when you're healing yourself and you're writing this stuff and you're reading about it, because even I keep a journal that I write in, um, I keep like, I've got 10 of them all together over the lifespan of I'm 36 years old. And I go back and read stuff and I get touched sometimes and I'm like, Hey, you were, you're not that person you were the day before. So could you let the audience know about the books that you have already published in the forthcoming books that will be coming out later? Okay. So currently um, it was published for a few years, but it's off the market. Now there was the prophet's daughter, which was a post-apocalyptic um, that again, I wrote when I was a teenager and that was my first real dip into the writing world. The follow-up book, I've written a, actually I wrote a novel on when I was in a psychiatric unit as a teenager and stuff like that, but I never really got around to editing it. So that could come in the future, who knows. Uh, then there's When I Am Someone Else, which is available on Amazon uh, globally. It is a my first poetry collection and I'm very proud of it. It's the, it pales compared to my current stuff because it was, you know, written four years ago, published two years ago. It's, it's, it's different, but it, it's focused on mental health, addiction, grief, very heavily on the grief aspect. After a loss of my friend, it helped me cope with that. Um, and it, I've had some really good reviews on this one. And then the one coming out in February of 2022 through Tamarin Hill Press based in the UK is Scarlet Clock, which is focused solely on mental health and it touches on addiction, yes, but it also focuses on the more taboo topics like self-harm and suicide. And it discusses those in very open, very descriptive way. And then after that, sometime in 2022, I'm we're not sure on a date yet, is The Buried King, which is a fantasy novel but the kicker is that it's the main focus of the story is the character is a trauma survivor and the story is about how she needs to develop connection and learn to live with the trauma and continue to live her life with her friends, with her family and move past what's happened to her. But while at the same time, she's saving her country. So. Oh, wow. So you've got a variety going on. and um everything's tailored to the mental health and to fantasy and to making people get comfortable with you and you're giving them a great world. So 
my, my question that I always like to come back to with authors is this. Um, with everything that you provide in your literature, has there been a moment inside this literature like that you had to stop because it got too tough? Like, I'll give you an example with me. Um, my uh, girlfriend passed away in 2019 from gastric bypass surgery. So oh, no. it's it's certain things like it's a, um, I forgot the name of the movie, but it's some kind of circus uh, musical movie. I can't watch it. It's a movie with, um, what's his name? Um, Bradley Cooper and uh, what's the girl's name? Um, all of, I don't know why it slipped in my mind. Um, but Lady Gaga. Yeah, a star is born. Yeah, star is born. I cannot do those. Like, and it's because that's something that we did. She liked to sing and she did karaoke. So a lot of singing, it's weird that I even use the microphone, but like that stopped a lot of the stuff that I did with music. Like I listened to music, but music is not an appreciation in my life. So in writing this book, was there some point that you kind of stopped and you froze and you couldn't go any further into that topic or anything like that? Yes. Uh, with the passing of my best friend, she was, we grew up together. And when she passed away, it was like punching a hole inside of a hole inside of a hole. And so when I would write about her, I could only go so far because once it got to a certain point, it became too overwhelming for me to cope with. So I would write how I was feeling, yes. And I would write about my sorrows about losing her, but I couldn't write about that shattered love and that deep, deep stuff. But in Scarlet Clock, there is more of a, more of a descriptive discussion around, you know, the loss of her and how I've grown in the six years since and, you know, how I would love for her to see the changes compared to who I was when I was 17, when I lost her to who I am now. Unfortunately, Thanks. she will never get to see that, but well, I like I'll... to incorporate her in my work. I'll say this, um, we may come from different religious backgrounds, spiritual backgrounds, but I always do believe in an entity that the people that leave this earth do watch over. So I think that she's watching you. I'm going to give you that merit because like you know, because so. so, I always like to say this, sometimes in the sky, you see the, the light open up. And when that light opens up, I always say, and I'm, we're not going to say a God or Jesus or a devil or whoever's in the sky, that light that shines down. I don't believe in angels or anything like that, but I do believe that sometimes a little mirror um, that they can see through or a window they can see through and see us. So I always like to say that to people. Uh, They're just so she, yeah, so she's always going to be with you there. Now, um, you're an author. An author, it's a very tough field. I actually have a book myself that I wrote. And, you know, we go through edits, things like this and that. I've heard a story about me following a girl all the way to Alaska. It's a real life story. I followed a girl all the way to Alaska, tried to get her to, to give me one more chance. And she told me no. And I tell a story of me coming all the way back across the country. So, you know, I know what it's like to, to get to the point where you're real passionate about a project. And then you get to the point where you're like, uh, I'm not going to use foul language, but I'm going to say we're like, F this project. I don't want to do this anymore. So which one of your books was that F that project? What, which book was it like you had to, you threw the manuscript or you took the computer, the typewriter, whatever you were using and just tossed it? I have written multiple half books where I get somewhere and then I'm like, you know what, F this, I'm done. But with The Prophet's Daughter, I remember when I first wrote it, there was one scene. So I wrote it very relatively quickly. I wrote it in six months. But there was one scene that I had to write because it was a very important scene. It was a very pivotal scene. But I did not want to write it because it was breaking my heart. What would happen? 
it took me two weeks of solidly staring at a blank page doing nothing else just except for eating every once in a while and staring at this page before I was like okay fine I can do this but for those two weeks I didn't even I, I couldn't do it I was gone and then when it came to when I'm someone else um when I what what I really found was hard, hardest was publishing it actually because I self-published that one um and it was it gets very disheartening and then you so that one I actually finished in I want to say 2017 2018 and it wasn't until 20 late 2019 actually a year two years ago this month that I decided to publish it because I was like this is garbage I'm nothing I write is good enough blah 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 and it just spirals like that but I've had some very good luck with the Buried King and Scarlet Clock so I haven't hit fuck it point with them yet <laughs> yeah oh, right. yeah and, and i and i yeah well we can we can use following which i don't care i just sometimes you get the pg audience in there so yeah sometimes we're just like fuck it because I, I say that a lot the people around me they they hear me say that you know or my phrase is fuck that shit like i just i'm done with it now um the hardest thing that happens in life and we're critics of ourselves but having someone else be a critic of you um i tell you a story and, and i always do the people so they can uh hear Exactly like what what happened to me. Um, and basically, what happened? Uh, went through school. I was a, a scholastic athlete. I went to class on time. I did bad stuff in between here and there, but uh, they told me that I was undersized to go to college to wrestle. They, you know, I had four state titles, four team titles. So I had eight state championships and then two rings from two other sports. So I had a ring full of stuff. So you weren't going to really tell me too much. And I always worked hard enough to where I could get to college. And I finally got to get to college I wanted to. But it was the criticism from someone that I looked up to, a guy that before me, he was, I was in fifth grade watching him wrestle his whole, I watched his whole high school career while I was in middle school. This guy told me I was undersized and that I would never be any good. And that hurt me more than anybody else, than my mother saying this, than anybody else, a college scout telling me this, this one guy, this, he wasn't my idol, but he was a person I looked up to because I learned how to wrestle from him. And obviously I did a little bit better than him in, in later years, but still uh, that criticism there stuck with me throughout my life. So I always made sure no matter what I was doing in life, it could be if we're just hanging a nail up in the wall that I did it with 70% and seeing what it looked like. And then I came back to it with 110% the next time I had to do that same exact thing. So how do you handle the criticism? And the reason I said this, that, that 70 and then that 110 is because I want to hear the feedback from my 70% so that when I hit them with 110, they have nothing to say. Because a person that hits 110 all the time, they burn out. I think, now this is just my perspective. I've hit a point where apathy is my best friend i'm at the point where it's like you know what i'm going to create i'm going to do what i want i'm going to write what i want paint what i want because i also paint um i'm going to cook random things i'm going to go for random walks i'll do whatever i want and anybody else's opinion i just don't care so the criticism the biggest criticism that does knock me off my butt is when it's a publisher saying oh you're not good enough because it's like, I put my heart and soul into my work. But you know what? If it's not good enough for you, then maybe it's good enough for somebody else. And if it's not good enough for them, it's good enough for somebody. It's good enough for me. So. 
that's and how see, I liked it. And I like that right there because what you did in this episode right now is you just made this episode a gym because you help somebody that's writing right now and they're at a position that they're turning that into someone and then they're letting a family member or somebody read it. And that family member is going to come back with some harsh criticism because for some reason, people close to us are the hardest on us. And I'm like, you're not even doing anything with your life. Sit, sit the fuck down. <laughs> I mean, I don't say that to him, but I just, I say that I say it. It in my head and I'm being honest about that. I'm like, let me know the merits and let me know the, what you're going to demerit on this at the same time. But like I said, people closest to us are our harshest critics. So how do you deal with the ones that are close to you than a stranger? Because I'll give you this. A stranger gives me opinion. I'm going to be very open to hear their opinion and everything else. Someone close to me, I'm going to listen to it in a cornered manner. And if they say something too flagrant, I may have to put them in my memories museum and send them packing. But a random stranger can tell me anything. Uh, I guess for me, that's not a great way to get perspective. I don't have, I, my grandparents are very supportive and mm -hmm. my grandmother, she's very wonderful in giving me her criticism. She's very productive with it, constructive. So it's not like, oh, this is garbage or, oh, this is bad. It's, you know, this is okay, but I think it could be better if you did this or, oh, this is not get great, you know, and though it kind of sucks because I'm like, sometimes it's, a scene that I really liked and she's like mm, that's not great then it's kind of like ouch like that's I, I I thought I did good with that but it's realizing that you know you kind of need that outsider perspective even if it is somebody you know and somebody you love that outsider perspective is always going to be needed for your work if you want your work to be the best it can be so it's kind of accepting that and just kind of swallowing that pill as you take it okay and I like that once again now, there comes a part in the show where, um, like I said, I'm a little bit older than you. I pay homage to a uh, TV show in America. We call them news magazines when they come on too late at night called 2020. 2020 was a, a show that did really in-depth questions. They were they had journalistic integrity. They shaped and mold the person that was being interviewed because it made you more personable to the audience. Even though we've asked questions thus far. Are you ready for the deeper questions? These questions, um, they were asked by a lady uh, named Barbara Walters. Barbara Walters would come on at 1046 at night, and I would listen to the, what she said, and I'd listen to the diction, uh, how she enunciated and pronounced everything she said, because the way that she talked to the person was the way that we got the emotion out the the person. So are you ready to be on the hot seat? Oh, yeah. Are you ready? All right. That's awesome. Now, here's your first question. If we could go back in time, we don't want to go back in time to fix anything, but would there be something in your life that you would want to relive? Not to, not done any different, but just a chance to go back and relive it. The day I met my cat. <laughs> I know that sounds super basic, but my cat has been my biggest support. She's, I love her. She's super friendly and loving and she gives me a reason on those hard days. And the day I met her, I just felt something in my heart click. And at that point, I didn't even know I liked cats. But there's just something about this girl that I I love. But if we were to go into the deeper, deeper stuff, I would have to say, do you want the real deeper stuff? Yeah, we want the real. All right. There was an event many, many years ago now. And... I would like to go back in time and witness it myself when I had, I had 
attempted to hurt myself and it left my family in shambles. They were really, really destroyed over it. Um, understandably, like my grandparents had never witnessed that kind of thing before. And I guess I would just like to be able to have perspective on it so that I can personally reflect instead of that lingering guilt of what I did to my family, at least I could know and see, you didn't, didn't do it just to your family, you did it to yourself and kind of have that, that, that grasp, that understanding, you know what I mean? Yeah, kind of like seeing the whole full chain reaction, because when we're, we're, we're accountable for what we do to a d- degree, but we're not accountable, and everybody's like this, because I'm even like this, we're not accountable for what we do to the people around us when we do things that, you know, that are negative on, or negative, or not, we're not going to even call that negative, but that just cause life to become a disarray, in other words. All right, so let's get a little deeper then. All right, so you told us about this. Um, has there been a point? in the last six or seven months, or we'll just say the last year, because we've all been going through this crazy lockdown. And I know up there that you guys have had it a way, way tougher than we have with the lockdown on things. Has there been a moment that you've been able to just sit back and reflect and really say, hey, I have made it. I have gotten out of what was keeping me in some water and I'm on land again. Have you had a period like that lately? I can't pinpoint an exact day or moment, but yes, yes, I definitely have. I've had moments where I'll just kind of be going through my day, you know, making dinner or cleaning up and it'll just kind of hit me like a year ago, I was actively self-harming. I was struggling with heart failure from severe alcoholism and self-harm and it was just, everything was falling apart really quickly. And then... I managed to pick myself up and keep climbing up that ladder. And now I have two book deals. I have my arts taking off. I have opportunities like this where I get to speak with cool people. Like sometimes I just sit there and I look at it and it's it's like looking at a double-sided mirror where on the other side, it's Alice in Wonderland. And on the one side, <laughs> it's just the grass is definitely greener on this side. Okay. Okay, I like that. Now, here we go with the tough question. This is the last one in this 2020 segment, and I love this one. Um, I forgot the name of the movie. It had Sandra Bullock in it, and I think it had Keanu Reeves. It wasn't uh, Speed or anything. Something about uh, leaving a message in a, in a mailbox and another person could read it later. If you could write a postcard, I, I, I forgot what it was called, but it was a pretty cool concept. So if you could write a postcard to your past self and you – in, in this, these are the rules with this so that it, it's really tight. You could give a bit of knowledge, but you couldn't give insight into the future. What would you say? And when I say you can't give insight into the future, you can't per- let them know what happens in the future, but you can tell them something that, that could just make them feel a, a certain way that you feel now without telling them about the future. What would you write on that postcard to your past self? Honestly, that's a hard one. That's a hard one. I would definitely have to say hope is possible. Just that simple statement. Those three words, hope is possible. Hope is possible. Now, I need you to elaborate a little bit deeper on that. Yeah. How is hope possible? When I was younger, I I was very, very, I still struggle to this day with, with it. I'm not saying I don't, but I had no hope. I was completely, no, nothing would get better. I was going to be sick forever. Life was always going to suck. I would always be trapped in the environments I was trapped in I wouldn't 
have the friends I have, I was, I'd be alone. I'd be, it'd be awful. And there was no point in living, but with time, dedication, and, you know, this amazing support of my, my circle, I have managed to build a life that I consider has been my, my version of worth living. And I'm so excited now to see what it holds for me compared to when I was 14, 15, or even when I was 20, when, when I look back on it and I had no hope, I, I didn't feel it. I, everyone would be like, you just have to have hope. You just have to have hope. And I just, I found it was like this foreign, strange emotion that came from Siberia. Like it just didn't make sense to me. <laughs> okay. And one thing I like that you said, cause we're going to go a little deeper and we're out of those questions, but here you said something about a circle and in the mental health world, they always tell us to stay away from codependency on things. I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself real fast. My codependency is this. Um, I keep a lot of people around me in short stances and, and different stuff. I never let them know truly what they do for me or how they interact with my life. I try to be a blessing to them and try to help them along their road. But these people, I'm codependent on these people because at certain points they won't know it, but I'll know it when I need them. And I don't allow them to know that because I, I do believe that they will mess it up if I let them know what they do for me. So I believe codependency is healthy to a degree. Codependency on the other realms where people say it's all severe, where I'm just leaning on this person and pushing this person in the ground just so that I can stand up. I don't believe in that. But I do believe in we can lean on each other and rock in the boat so neither one of us fall out the boat. You know, if you go too far over, I can pull you back. You can pull me back if I go too far forward or backwards. I do believe in that type of codependency because we all need that. And when you don't have that, that's where all these other compulsions and things take over and anxiety gets just the best of you and you have nowhere to go with it. So what are your thoughts on codependency on others? Because you said you have a circle. And what do you think are the, the set boundaries you should have when you have a codependency with people? I am a very honest, transparent person. So when I, when I develop relationships, I'm not great at that. I, I never know what to trust, what to expect, what to accept. That's a whole thing. But once I've developed a relatively safe rapport with somebody, I try to be honest with them about, you know, you need to tell me if I'm doing this wrong. You need to tell me if I'm doing this wrong. You need to tell me so we can be in com communicative, communicative. We need to speak and be open and honest with each other. So I think it, it, as I've been taught in my years of therapy, it's very healthy and natural to have communication and people that you need to lean and depend on when, cause you can't do it alone. You can't, you can try, but it's, it's just not possible. Sometimes you need somebody to tell you, hey, you're being an idiot, or hey, you're doing a good job. You need that. It, you, you can't check yourself. Sorry. Okay, but, and, and I, I definitely agree with that. Um, now, we have two different things that people do in life, <clears throat> and these two things, um, I'm agreeing with a, a newer terminology that people use. People talk about a mental health checkup. No, nah, I don't believe in that anymore. I believe in mental health maintenance. When you do maintenance on something, it's something that you're going to continuously do. When you do a checkup, it's just like we go to the doctor. I'll go to the doctor three times a year. That's my checkup. Outside of that, who cares? I'm going to eat the candy I want. I'm going to run around and do what I want. But when I do maintenance on something, that oil change in that car, making sure those brakes are all right, uh, actually taking care of the air pressure in my tires, 
Um, just making sure the car sounds right. That's a maintenance I do every single day. And I believe in mental health maintenance now over a checkup. So what is your stance? Do you believe in a mental checkup or mental maintenance? I'd say both. Um, maintenance is major. Like you need to maintain, you need to do those self-care things, those out of the box things, those in the box things, all of that. You need to do that. That's just how it is. Unless you want to spiral. Like it's, it's not your fault that you have mental health, mental health, because everybody has it, but yes. it is your responsibility. You know what I mean? So when it yes. comes back up, sometimes when you're doing the maintenance, you know, you might not notice, you know, you're kind of slipping a bit. You're kind of falling a little bit, or you, maybe you're going a bit too high and things are just kind of not quite where they should be. Not should be. I hate the word should, but th where they could be, you know, things might be, you're, maybe you're not eating properly and, you know, that's affecting your stomach and you're getting sick a little more. And so you need to take that, take some time to just kind of check up like, okay, what am I doing that I could be doing better? What could I, what am I doing that I should probably slow down on so I can make sure I do it properly? Stuff like that. So it's kind of a, you need a very healthy balance. I mean, I don't think you really do that alone. There's always going to be a need for some assistance with that, but I think both are very vital. Okay. And I, and I wholeheartedly agree with that because um, like you said, the ins and outs and, and, you know, that go on with this, the responsibility for keeping that maintenance is yourself. Uh, the checkup could be anybody coming in to just reiterate it. Um, everything you said there, it, it gels together and it works out properly. Um, so can you let the audience know where they can find you on the internet, how they can get in touch with you? We call this the shameless plug. And the reason it's shameless is because people want to interact with you people are going to want to know more about you after they hear this interview and hear any other interview you've done anywhere else and you know this and i know this so please let the audience know where they can meet you greet you and you can shut the front door on them <laughs> um well i'm mostly active on my instagram for social media wise which is my first name with an x beside it so k-i-l-a-y-l-a-x simple and then that's also my i have a facebook page which is my kalela I just said my own last name wrong. Kalela Pilon, um, which is P-I-L-O-N. P is in pipe, I-L-O-N. And I use that not as often as I probably should, but I, it, it's there. I have it. Um, I have a TikTok, but it's awkward because it's TikTok. And that's just always going to be awkward to me. Um, <laughs> but Instagram is the best, the best place to reach me. Okay. And, and that's amazing. Uh, Instagram is a great storefront. It's a great cul-de-sac to meet people and to greet and shut the front door on certain people. Um, not in a bad way, guys, but sometimes some people have to slide out your DMs and go into another box. Kalela. That is the toughest name that I've ever had to remember. <laughs> I have to be 100% honest with you on that one. And it has been a pleasure having you on West Virginia and Commonplace. So um, at the end of the show, I do something because I, I kind of want to give back to you because you've... Uh, been very versed in everything that's going on with you and you shed light on mental health. And that's something that we appreciate over here at West Virginia and Commonplace because mental health is a taboo. It's a stigma that people want to put underneath their rug and we shouldn't do that. So Kalayla, here's your testament real fast. Going through life, you had hardships. You didn't let any of that stop you. Um, certain things happened and they pushed you in certain directions that could, could have seemed negative to you. But at the same time, that negative had some charge to it. So it became a positive. When you have those positive and th those things um, happening like that, um, 
you you can take those positive and keep moving, keep moving. We have up and ups and downs and stuff like that. They happen all the time. Um, that's what builds a character. That's what shapes the eyebrows. That's what makes the the uh, face move. That's what makes our skin tone. Those things make you who you are. Um, and the stress of dealing with mental health every day. Everybody deals with it. Some people have to deal with it amplified. Some people don't deal with it amplified. The ones that do it amplified should be commended because sometimes just sensory things can get to you. And that being said, you should know this, that you are a poster child. You're out here, you're actually advocating for the youth. That's a hard thing to do because, and when I'm saying the youth, I'm talking about 16 to 22. There's some adults in there somewhere, but 16 to 22 is a hard place because we're finding our identity. We're trying to figure out who we are and what we want to do in life. But along the way, through your trials and tribulations, you found out who you wanted to be. You become an author. You become someone that people can entrust with their thoughts and with your thoughts at the same time. So I want to take a moment and thank you. I want you to embrace yourself. I want you to get up tomorrow morning after you take your shower, if you take your shower at night, and look at yourself twice in the mirror and understand this. It's more than just being an influence. It's more than just writing a book and telling somebody this and that about your life. It's the experience. That experience that you are given to someone, someone's experience may not be truly all the way similar to what yours is, but your experience is a linear line that that person can follow and see how you went this way and went that way. And they don't have to go the way that they shouldn't go because you've already done it. So hug yourself tonight. Hold yourself tonight and remember that you are one of the greatest creations on this earth because you decided to open your mouth, to take a pen, to open your eyes and see the world. Thank you. The You're world welcome. is beautiful in its own way, man. Yeah, no doubt. So I definitely want to thank you for coming on West Virginia and Commonplace. And to finish this off, would you like to give a shout out to anyone that has helped you and inspired you along the way? Because here's what happens in life. We go along and we think that we're doing everything alone, but we're not doing everything alone. There's there's millions of people behind everything that goes on with me. There's tons of people behind what goes on with you. So who would you like to give a shout out to? My Nan. My Nan is my best friend and best person ever. She has been there for me through thick and thin, and I hope I can make her proud. And I know you'll make her proud. So once again, this is JR from West Virginia and Commonplace with Kalayla, and I got it right. You did. And, and all of her messages and everything else, she will be providing me in her media kit that we've talked about. She'll send me show notes to links to everything that belongs to her, and I will put them inside my show notes on my show. So you will be able to click through those show notes, find her, talk to her, interact with her, buy her books, and become part of her legion. And I say legion because that's the best terminology because we don't want to have cults in the world anymore. So your legion is uh, going to be started or get bigger um, after this podcast. So once again, I want to thank you for coming on. And it's me, JR, signing off. Thank you for having me.